Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Heidi White. We are here to answer your questions about Wallace Stegner's crossing to safety. That's a but very first, confident declaration, David. <laughs> I'm, here to, I'm here to listen to your questions. We're here to state your questions <laughs> over the internet. And, and applaud how astute they are and insightful and then being silent in the presence of such greatness. That's, make, my, that's my plan. Make comments about their existence. Heidi, how's it going? You know what? I'm having a rough day. You want to know why? I got in a fender bender this morning. And it was all my fault. I was going around a roundabout and I hey, hit you cannot somebody. declare your guilt publicly until this has been resolved. Child of a lawyer here. Proceed. Uh, right. There <laughs> was an alleged accident near you, Heidi. Some <laughs> might say Ooh. that you should, you should stay in one lane when going round a roundabout. Wow. But I, I think that could be contested. I think people should know. <laughs> Heidi White is on the road. She's thinking important thoughts about important things. And I don't know what's going to happen. My favorite so, part about this is that you got in an accident going around a roundabout the day you're leaving for England. I know. And I see, it's just you an know, emotional roller coaster. Yeah. You tried to drive on the wrong side of the road. You had country confusion. That could be a valid excuse. Let's, let's try that in court. Let's contest this. Next thing I you know, know, she'll be put away for insanity, though. So <laughs> I'll be in England. So I'm just going to be. You'll find me drinking tea and telling the butler to fetch me some scones. So I see how this goes. You, you, have, a run, you have a run in with the police and then flee the country. You're lucky they didn't take your passport today. Uh, no, daughter of a lawyer. <laughs> Which kind of are you, my a, accuser, Angelina? <laughs> I, you know, as any good lawyer, I'm playing every angle. Exactly. Hey, Angelina, did you also get in the accident or have any run-ins with the law today? Uh, not today. It's it's a Tuesday. Oh, it's your day off. <laughs> you are consorting with a known criminal right now. Speaking of known criminals, oh, let's I, I've, I've already got my PayPal hooked up to the Colorado, uh, you know, police. So it is, <laughs> I could just like direct deposit right into your bail. Oh, thanks, friends. You're the best. I, I'm that, there for you, kid. That's called forethought. <laughs> hey, let's answer some questions. Before we do that, though, let's just say a quick word from our friends over at New St. Andrews College. They are located at the center of Moscow, Idaho, in the historic Skadabo block. Uh, on Friendship Square on Main Street. That sounds made up. The the location <laughs> parts of this always throw me off a little bit. Anyway, this is a place where students are encouraged to live and to work as responsible mem members of the local community. New St. Andrew's mission through the liberal arts tradition is to graduate leaders to shape culture. The mission places um, their alumni as business execs, writers, teachers, movie producers, filmmakers, designers, pastors, entrepreneurs, and more. And they invite you to visit their college on October 26th and 27th. So if you want to learn about uh, those campus visits, you can head over to www.nsa.edu slash visit. And again, that is www.nsa.edu slash visit. And those dates, once one more time, are October 26th and 27th. So thanks to New St. Andrews for, for sponsoring Close Reads this month. And um, I have had many students and friends who attended New St. Andrews, including, I believe... Um, student who just got married recently so congratulations to that unnamed person who i'm not going to say on the show because i don't know if they would appreciate that but anyway <laughs> moving on don't want to expose their secret marriage so David. exactly so if you're interested in going to a place where you're most likely going to leave married try to stay in. <laughs> ring wow. before spring or your money back <laughs> when i went to a bible college and it was uh -huh. called Emmaus bible college and not to throw that college under the bus because it's a great place but 
it got the nickname of Bimaeus Bridal College. Mm. So yeah. my yes. parents, in fact, my parents met there. My aunt and uncle met there. I believe my grandparents met there. So you working know, on that MRS degree. When in Rome. Say. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. All right. Let's answer, let's answer some questions. Um, we're going to do some of these rapid fire and then we'll do some of these where I uh, will kind of linger on them as necessary. Do you guys have this first, this first question comes from April, April. Um, and she says she doesn't know a polite way to phrase this, but this Ooh, doesn't seem I'm nervous. This doesn't seem impolite. <laughs> Why do you think that Charity's son-in-law stutters? Why did Stegner make that that um, that choice? I, I think that I, I do have that right in front of me, and I've been thinking about that. Um, I don't know if I saw that a formal or structural purpose in that. You guys may disagree with that, but I mostly saw it as. A, a humanizing action. And, and it does talk about how he is very, very intelligent. Um, and he's an economist, right? And mm-hmm. I can't remember where they say that he does commentary, but, um, you know, so, so maybe it's one of those, the women in the family do tend to marry very, very intellectual men who might need their help for their outward success. So maybe that was a part of it, but I didn't see it as necessarily contributing to the story in a formal way. Well, I think that it, you know, it, it, it points out that he's a great writer. And Larry says, if you read his stuff, you'd realize how smart he is. But sometimes when you talk to him, it's not always abundantly clear at first. So I think that's in keeping, you know, that's goes along with what you're saying there about how the women in that family tend to marry very smart men who they help make Mm-hmm. more successful or they solve some sort of problem that they see in, in the man or whatever. So that right. probably, if anything, that might be part of it. Angelina, do you have any additional thoughts on that? Well, Is there I, any I, kind of archetypal relationship here? Not, I didn't see it that way, but I did see it as an echo of Sid, you know, the dual nature, mm-hmm. the way he comes yeah. across versus what's really there. It seems like the yeah. women in that family are like attracted to what potential un- underlying potential. Huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I hope that was enough of an answer. <laughs> um, let's talk about the poem. The Heather, oh. among other people, asked about the, the Robert Frost poem at the beginning. How does it relate to the story, and does the poem give us any further insight or appreciation? So let's take a few minutes to to kind of linger in that. I should probably read <clears throat> that poem. I read so, it before I started the book, but now I don't remember it. Yeah, so this is this is how it goes. It's a, it's I think it's an excerpt. I could give all to time except except what I myself have held. But why declare the things forbidden that while the customs slept I have crossed to safety with? For I am there, and what I would not part with, I have kept. Um, there's a lot you could do with like some of the structural choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frost makes here. The enjambment is really nice. Makes it interesting to read. Um, what do you, how does, does this, does this cause you to think any thoughts about this book? <laughs> hmm. I'm just, it, I'm just re-looking. David, it sounds like you've thought about it. Do you have any initial thoughts while we gather ours? Well, I can ramble. I'm, I can certainly yeah. do that. Well, one thing I, I noticed is that the poem, he says, for I am there. I, he, so you saying I've crossed this, 
there's forbidden things that the, mm-hmm. the poet has to declare while the customs slept. Um, or that while the customs slept, I've crossed to safety with. So he's taken those things crossed to safety and now he is there. Mm-hmm. I am there now and I would not part with, with, and what I would not part with, I have kept. Um, so there's, there's a poem about making choices, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and but the thing is, you have to. How, how do you part with the things that you're, you know, choosing whether or not to keep with? You part. You part with them by giving them to time, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, yeah. long, oh, go ahead, Angelina. Well, I was just going to say, I, I, um, as I think through the poem, I don't think it changes any of the things that we talk about. We've already talked about. Like, I, I don't know that it gives us necessarily new insight we, we've talked about the time and the memory and the layers and that was all a big part of it and i agree with uh, your reading of the last line you know the, something has to die in you t- to be able to cross over to safety right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i like that well and i was thinking I, i've been thinking a lot about uh what graham said last week to close the podcast which i i thought was just so brilliant and lovely when he pointed out that this book is in many ways a gift to a gift to charity, but we're not sure of that as we, as it flows through, right? A lot of it comes across to the reader and to me uh, as judgment upon her and an invitation to cast judgment upon charity. Although there is still kind of this sense of the whole novel of attachment to her as well, but she is definitely the one that, that Larry is shining the brightest light upon her failures and frailties throughout the novel. And yet, and yet as Graham pointed out at the end of this novel, this is an artifact. This whole book I think is just an artifact of his forgiveness and acceptance of her and that that is his that's larry's crossing to safety and i i think that this poem speaks to that and kind of encapsulates that um Hmm. with before we even start the book Hmm. right but there's a way for us to know that until unless we go back to it like we're doing on this podcast which i like that we're doing that because as i read that i look at that and i think yes what he's saying is i want to remember it all I want, I need to remember it all. That's my crossing to safety is in remembering it and yet also forgiving all of it that we have all contributed to each other. Do you think that the form of this book, this this thought just occurred to me, is an elegy? And mm-hmm. and the reason that I say that, it's always interesting. I know y'all experience this too, but it's always interesting when you read a book and you're pairing it with some other book just, you know, accidentally. Right. Yeah, so yeah. immediately after this podcast, I'm, I'm teaching Beowulf. So this is fresh in my mind. And Tolkien argues that Beowulf's not an epic. It's an elegy. I've been really stressing this with my class. And as I sit here thinking about it, there's a lot of the same elements of, of the elegy in this book, the, the sense of time passing away, um, something lost and something gained um, the whole thing being told in reflection. And so it's a, it's a dual kind of, we're going to specifically Tolkien argues that this is a Christian author looking back on a pagan past and sorting through what are the good things we can remember and take forward. And what are the bad things we need to leave behind? It, it seems like there's a lot of the same dynamic going on in this book. Hmm. I like that Angelina a lot. Hmm. Um, 
what do you make of the line of the poem? I think would that think that this will come back to what you're saying, Angelina? So the, the very open, I could give all to time. So I mean, that's a pretty um, stream statement in a way, right? He's like, I could give all to time, except except what I myself have held. But what things? What does that mean? Like, wh- what does it mean that he's held something? Is it what things are there that you haven't held that you would even have the capability of giving to time? Hmm. Um, and then why declare the things forbidden that while the customs slept, I have crossed to safety with? <clears throat> um, I think the syntactical, the things, choices that Frost is making here, like I feel like this is one of those poems where if you're trying to get at it, you might need to rewrite out the, <laughs> rewrite out the mm-hmm. sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, that first line, I could give all to time, except what I myself have held. So what 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 does he mean? What I myself have held? Like these, because he's saying I I can give anything to time, but the things I'm going to hold back are the things that I have held. But then he's like he then he's like countering his own idea again. But why declare the things forbidden? Right. So who's declaring the things to be forget forbidden? So while the customs right. slept, and who are the customs? Um. I've crossed the safety with as if slipping past them or something like that. So he's taking something forbidden. He's managed to get into pet like past someone, you know, he sneaks past them because they're sleeping. Um, and he's passed on to safety with them. Right. So I, I think that that's, um, a really important question. And I wish I knew the whole, co- I'm actually meant to look up if, if this was an excerpt. And it is. I, just, I read the whole thing and now I can't is, remember. Yeah. What poem is it, Angelina? Do you remember the title? I don't. I mean, I can okay. I'll, I'll I look can it up while you're talking. It. Yeah, yeah, we can Google it. So if we ask the question, how would you give all to time, right? In concrete terms, what would that be? And I, I think you guys can tell me if you would agree with this. My my first thought is forgetfulness, right? To give to time means to forget something, to not let it be formative to you. But, but what he's saying is I want to, there are things that I want to be formative to me. There's things I never want to forget. That's how I interpreted this. There's things that I need to remember and remember redemptively. Uh, Remember that it was formative and shaping to who I am. The forbidden things maybe, um, whatever he means by that, I didn't, I can't see it in context, but I don't know. What do y'all think about that idea of memory versus forgetfulness as you brought up Angelina as being thematic to the whole story? Oh, I absolutely think that's true. I mean, I, I read it and, but it's, I mean, it's really just syntax. I'm saying basically the same mm. thing that he holds on to the eternal things. Yeah. Hmm. So hmm. the whole poem is that it's almost like time is an emotionless judge. He says, I could share time's lack of joy or grief. So that time is the great leveler, right? It's just going to go. Right. And so he follows that up with, I could give all to time, except, except what I myself have held. So it's almost like um, joy and grief. He's going to hold on to that. Right. So this, the poem is called, I could give all to time. It's three stanzas. I have it here. If you want me to read it. Yeah, please. To time, it never seems that he is brave to set himself against the peaks of snow, to lay them level with the running wave. Nor is he overjoyed when they lie low, but only grave, contemplative and grave. What now is inland shall be ocean isle, then eddies playing round a sunken reef like the curl of the corner of a smile. 
and I could share time's lack of joy or grief at such a planetary change of style. Hmm. I could give all to time except, except what I myself have held. But why declare the things forbidden that while the custom slept, I have crossed a safety with? For I am there, and what I would not part with, I have kept. What a beautiful poem. I like that line. And um, what now is inland shall be ocean isle, then eddies playing round a sunken reef like the curl at the corner of a smile. Hmm. Sounds like T.S. Eliot. It does. I'm interested in something you said, Angelina, about the eternal things. Could you elaborate on that? Do you see that in Frost or in Stegner or both? Or is that your own? Oh, I was seeing it in Frost. Yeah. Like we, the eternal things are the only thing that we don't give to time, right? Hmm. So, but he, so he's held the eternal things then? Yes. Yes. That's what I, that's, that's how I, that's how I read it. I'm not sure I see that in Stegner. Do you agree with that? Because I think that one thing that actually you brought up to me, Angelina, which I think I've been thinking about a lot, um, is where are the eternal things in yeah. this book? Right. And, yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot this week too. Right. And so that's why I circled back to that, that I, I don't see Stegner contemplating the eternal things. I think what he's doing is making meaning from the relationships that have felt transcendent to him, but I don't see him looking beyond those relationships, even when he is talking, even when he is talking about being in Europe and he's talking about culture, right? Like he's talking entirely in this novel from what I'm interpreting and seeing at, from the things of this world. Um, even, you know, even in the contemplation of the, of the painting, the Piero's resurrected Christ, which by the way, I'm obsessed with, I, I want to put it in my house. I love that painting. Uh, and I'd never heard of it before. Thank you, Stegner. But that even in the contemplation of Christ, he is thinking about himself and his relationships and how they provide meaning to his life. And he's seeing those paintings as culture, not as transcendence. Uh, windows or icons into transcendence. Agreed. Uh, yeah. So, so what Heidi is referring to is a conversation we had earlier in which I think I was finally able to like pinpoint why I didn't connect with the novel. And it was because uh, Stegner resists a tr- transcendence, um, you know, like, um, so for example, a transcend, you know, Barry's full of transcendence. If, if Jaber's going to love something, he's going to point out to you that it's a higher love. It's always a symbol of a higher love, but he's always going to go beyond himself and beyond the physical world to get you to the metaphysical realm, um, which is my favorite, which is not just my favorite thing, which I was what I think art is supposed to do is to help you transcend. And so I've been frustrated with this book that Stegner resists that quite deliberately. So in terms of the poem, yes, I agree with you, Heidi that Stegner is not talking about, well, he's not talking about what I would necessarily mean by the eternal things, but I think he would probably, going up to that next line, the lack of joy or grief, I would say that the book is about love and suffering. Right. And so that that would probably be what Stegner is getting at. Right. right. With the things that you hold on to, which goes up to that that previous line about time's lack of joy or grief. Mm-hmm. That this book has been about joy and grief, Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I absolutely agree. And because we are 
people with a redeemed imagination, right? We, we as Christians can read this novel and we can see, we can fill in that gap that Stegner doesn't seem to be taking, right? Like, and we can see the transcendence in that. We can look at Piero's Christ and see that's a real Christ. That's a risen Christ, a Christ who has suffered, right? That's transcendent to a Christian. But I, I don't see him necessarily pondering and meditating on that. Oh, himself. absolutely agreed. Absolutely agreed. Did we, did we lose David? Are we even still recording? Well, you lost me, but oh. I'm here. <laughs> we lost you. You disagree? Or you don't see that same way? <laughs> Um, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, honestly, I, I just, I don't think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, I, don't think, like right. I, I think we're, I, I'm not going to say I disagree. Like my instinct is like when you guys were initially talking, when, well, when you were initially talking, Heidi, I was like, I was going to say, well, no, that's nonsense, but, um, <laughs> wow. but you know, I was going to say it nicely. Um, but, um, but then I'm, but I don't, but I didn't say that. Cause I don't know that I, I don't know that we're talking with the same, like, I don't know that I'm thinking the same things. Like it might be a matter of definition again. So I'm speaking specifically about, um, Wendell Berry's tendency in certain ordinary moments in his stories to immediately launch from that ordinary into the metaphysical, right? You know what I'm talking about. So yeah, but you mean he's naming it? Yes. Like there's something, it's, it's more like over, it's, it's ex explicit. Right. Um, and even while we were talking, I thought, okay, someone could make the argument that if Stegner is holding on to love and suffering, that those things are automatically transcendent. Um, and I wouldn't disagree with that, but I would mm -hmm. say that Stegner is, his primary concern is not to enter you into the transcendent. It's not to see the, like, he, I don't think he's telling a story about universal human suffering or universal wandering or, you know, not deliberately. I, I mean, that's unavoidable to some extent, but is that making any sense to you at all? Um, yeah, I actually think what we're getting, well, I mean, yes, no, it makes sense to me, but I'm trying to decide. Um, but okay. So let me, hmm. um, I don't like, I don't entirely disagree. I think, I think I disagree with the, like, I don't disagree with the premises so much as I disagree with the, where the premises take you to. Okay. Um, I think. So, but I haven't, I haven't thought about this, so I'm just reacting, <laughs> but sure. is it, but how is that different though? than I mean, like, like after apple picking, then it's to go to another frost poem, right? Like that's not about universal apple picking. It's using the specific instance <laughs> to get right. to something else that's, that's universal. Right. And, and that be, and then he speaks to something transcendent through a specific instance. Like that's what poet, that's the entire nature. Essential oh, absolutely. Agreed. Agreed. Um, I don't dis. <sighs> and what we're talking, what we're talking about here is like this is a very like we're talking about the fine line, a fine line of disagreement. We are talking about a very fine line, and 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 this has come out of my struggle to figure out why I couldn't connect with this because I am, I am, I'm in, You know, one of the things Graham said is this is a book about ordinary people. Well, I love books about ordinary people. It's not like I think everything has to be a heroic yeah, right, epic. Right, um, yeah, right. And and I 
think ordinary lives are very significant. And so I, I like those stories. So I don't think that's what's holding me back. Um, and I, I think that what gives ordinary lives meaning is transcendence and that there is a certain universality. I don't know that it necessarily has to be explicitly named. I can think of plenty of books that don't name it. And yet mm-hmm. I, st- I connect with the, with the universal. Uh, so I'm, I'm just wrestling with exactly what has happened. There is something different uh, between Stegner and Barry. And, and sure, I, sure. I, I, yeah. I, you know, and it's not just that Barry names it because he will also hint at it a lot more. Like, mm-hmm. I think Barry wants us, right. He wants us to go beyond Jaber to find the, to find the, uh, the meaning in the ordinary means to connect to the universal, right. We're all wandering. We're all trying to find home. And that's one of the reasons Barry will say, I'm not telling everybody to be a former, get, get past that, get past the particulars, right. I'm telling everybody tin your garden, right. That might not mean you're going to be an actual former. Um, and I, and I, I don't need, I just, I guess feel when I'm reading that Stegner resists that deliberately for some, for some reason. Yeah. I mean, I think he does. I definitely agree that he deliberately resists being particularly explicit. Um, I don't know. And I mean, I see, I I, see, I think you you could like, when you talk to Graham and I about this, we're going to, we're going to come at it with like that, that when we read it, we are identifying something transcendent about it. I think that must be true. And I think, my goodness, you know, when Graham said that all he could That's say Graham is that calling you right now. Yes, exactly. Put him on speaker for it. Um, <laughs> when Graham said at the end of the book, all he could say is that he was different. You know, I think that's exactly what art is supposed to do. I wish I wish I could have talked to him a lot more about that, um, because yeah. obviously he did connect to something transcendent in the book if he was changed by it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Well, and. I did too. I connected to something transcendent, but I, and I'm going to point to my favorite moment in the book again, which is when Sally's contemplating the resurrected Christ. Stegner through Larry. Yes. So through Larry, at least Larry, Larry is determined to make that moment about Sally. Right. It is the Christ is the icon of Sally. Right. He is seeing her suffering. She, he's watching her acknowledge, what are the words? Acknowledge and recognize the suffering in the painting. So I, as a Christian, am reading that part in tears because I believe that that Christ is real. Stegner, or through Larry, I think is saying Sally is real. Sally is what's giving the meaning to the painting, not that Sally is looking through the painting into the eternal. Now, I love the book, but I am not, I don't think that Larry is contemplating that moment in the same way that I am. And I think that's fine. I think that great literature does that. But I'm not convinced that Stegner through Larry as the narrator is attempting to connect with the transcendent, as much as he's attempting to say, find the meaning here, find the meaning in culture and in relationship. And that's enough. 
I don't believe it is enough, but I'm not judging the book, casting judgment. I loved the book, but I didn't see the, the invitation to the transcendent as much as I saw here is a beautiful world. And with these incredible relationships that we can find meaning in. Hmm. <laughs> um, I don't, like I said, I haven't thought about this enough. So I'm, I'm like, for me, it's just reaction. Um, sure. Or I could ask more questions, but we have it's my, my questions are the back burner <laughs> for this episode. Let's let, me, let, let, me let people think about that on their own and we can talk about it privately. Um, okay. So if we need to, um, oh, there's a quick follow up here from Sarah. Um, she says from the frost poem, the line I could give all the time, except what I myself have held. Are there specific things she asks or people that each character is holding and will not concede to time? When I read the poem, she says through the reading of uh, through after reading the book, the reference to holding made me think of how Larry constantly has to hold or pick up or carry Sally. So what, if anything, are the other characters holding on to? Hmm. Good question. Well, I mean, Sid's holding, you know, um, Charity's holding on to Sid. Sid's holding on to his, you know longing to be something else um there's a lot of things they should be holding on to and a lot of things they're not that they should be letting go of um i think that's one of the big tensions of the book right the the sort of subtextual plot if you will is that the things that they're hold this that there's there's too rarely a a healthy balance between holding on to the things you should hold on to and letting go of the things you shouldn't and right. being able to identify which is which is one of the great challenges of being alive in general but it's also just one of the great challenges of of the characters in um in this book you know it's one it's part of the conflict if you will yeah um, i think that's what's going on in that line why declare the things forbidden that while the custom slept, I have crossed the safety. I think there's this idea that someone's saying you should not hold on to these things. And he's saying, but these are the things that got me to the other side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you saying that these things should be forbidden? These are the things that. that and you're right. Power, that's, yeah. that's one of the essential conflicts of the book, right? even between Larry and Sid and Sid at the end is saying, you know, you've not understood. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah you thought this was holding me back and I'm telling you it, it wasn't. And that in a sense, and, and speaking of holding on to Sid is holding on to charity at the end or he's, he won't let her go. Right. Um, Literally. Because, yeah. And he, um, and then, yeah. And that, and I think that then you have that moment where they literally hold each other. Right. And she holds him almost like a little child. Right. Um, bef- you know, and I can't, I don't remember exactly if that's right before she leaves, but I think it is. And that's when it's when Sally and, Sally and mm-hmm. uh, Larry, which want to get out of the room. <laughs> they want to just go into the kitchen. Right. Um, okay. Let's um, Jesse, don't worry. We're going to get to your very intense questions in a minute. Oh, I uh, bet it <laughs> okay. So um, man, there's so many good questions. I'm trying to find one that um, there's one in here that was less intense. Ooh. Um, yeah, throw us a softball, huh? So the the frost poem we talked about that. Um, okay. Um, man, um, uh, I thought I had an easy one, but it's not. <laughs> um, 
Okay, this is an interesting question. Which, yes, Melissa, that means it's a good question. Who is Larry's audience? Um, do other memory books that are like this have a stated audience? And for whom is Larry remembering? Do you think it's for himself? And how does that color and uh, uh, how and what he remembers? Hmm. I think it's, I don't, I mean, I don't think we can know the answer to that question because it doesn't explicitly say. Angelina, do or hi, do other books of this kind have a specific stated audience? Very, usually. Stated? No. Mm-hmm. Can you think of another memory book that has an audience? Maybe it's not That's, stated, but that... I've like, been sitting here thinking about that. Well, Beowulf has an audience, but it's not stated. No, right. right. Okay. Yeah. What book's not a memory book? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Great question. Um, I don't know that it... Uh, matters. I'm going to yeah. step into it by yeah. saying maybe it doesn't matter. I don't know that it matters. Mm-hmm. I mean, every story that's written is written for the person who wrote it more than for the people who are going to hear it, right? Isn't that kind of how art functions? I'm telling the story that I have to tell, right? That's what you think about rather than what's the story people want to hear. Right. And yes. so, and since we've said this is about Larry trying to come to terms with charity and come to a place of forgiveness and peace, then it seems like whatever their other audiences there might be, primarily he's talking to himself. He's trying to sort his own. I mean, that's true of writers, not not of this writer, I verbal process, but a lot of writers can only figure out what they think after they've written it, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. So, so you read it, you read what you wrote to figure out what you think. I hear what I say and then I know what I've thought. Um, but it's the same idea, right? You have to express it to work it out. Mm-hmm, yeah. So I think primarily... This is well, I mean, that, Larry writing for Larry. And, and even if you're saying, I mean, even if you're thinking very specifically about the market and like you're more, you know, you're like Robert Ludlum or something, you know, even if you're thinking in that way, you still have to write it out to work it out. Yeah. You, you can still only, I mean, even if you are trying to think this is what people want, I'm going to write a story that people want, you know, it really only works because there's something inside of you that is able to to meet that need. <laughs> so, so this is an interesting question because now that we're starting to talk about it, my mind's starting to spin within the novel. Um, and I'm thinking about the, uh, the judgment that the characters cast upon academia, right? Write a novel for the purpose of, of advancement in your career, for the purpose of impressing your department, for the purpose of getting tenure, right? Like, so But Larry, this is, this is, and and Larry often talks about himself, you know, I'm this, I'm a producer, um, whereas Sid is the connoisseur and Sid wants to write for the love of writing. He wants to write for the sacramental aspect of it for the becoming of himself. Maybe this is Larry's, in some ways, Larry's attempt to be like Sid uh, and to write something for sheer love of the people involved and for what he's, for his own life, to sacramentalize his own life. Um, and I think in many ways he's writing it for charity because he talks a lot, several times in the book, he mentions, I wish I would have said more. I wish I would, you know, and, and it seems as though, as far as we know, the only one within the story who he cannot say those things to is charity. And we speculated that maybe Sally has died. You know, maybe this is many years later. We just don't know though, but we do know charity is gone. 
So when he's saying in the story, oh, I wish I would have said more. I wish I would then I think a lot of it's for her. Well, you know, uh, Krista, uh, in the questions, she mentioned that Mo and Hallie mm-hmm. asked Larry. I just realized that there's Mo and a Larry in this book. That's, <laughs> um, That's not it, an archetypal reading. And Hallie is not that far from Curly. Let's be. Oh, <laughs> I don't um, think you want to go there. But anyway, so she mentions that Mo and Hallie asked Larry to write a book about her parents and he said he couldn't, but, but like then he did. Oh, but that's a that's a that's a recurring thing that goes through the book, right? Is this a story that can be written? He he says that a lot. Mm. Right. And one of the motifs that he's wrestling with is can he even tell this story? He right. talks a lot about can he do justice to the story? Will I remember the right things? Who could possibly understand what bound us together? Like there's a lot of that internal. And it feels like in the end he said uh-huh. I'm not gonna worry about a lot of that. Exactly. In fact, mm. to me it reads it reads like a diary. Yeah. I feel like I'm reading Larry's diary. Like, I don't even know if this got published. Well, if it was the diary, though, you'd probably get more specific details about specific days. What we get here is we get like four different scenes, basically. No, what I mean that it reads like a diary is it's, um, it has the internal wrangling that you find in a diary, oh, right? right? Where you try yeah. to f- sort out what, what yeah, you yeah. feel about, how you reflect about. So I went to this party and then you just pour out what you think about the party you just went to. It, it right. feels like that with right. the commentary right yes and the whole i wish i would have said something else or i wish i would have that's very diary mm-hmm. yeah more than more than most memory books this does seem internal like this this seems almost like where um we we, we as the wider readers are looking in on something very private and intimate and that's what makes that's what draws us in and makes us love these characters is this feeling of not voyeurism or spying, but of being invited into something that is intimate for these four people. And somebody else asked on the, uh, on the Facebook, why aren't the kids included more? And, and I would say, you know, maybe it's commentary on parenting or whatever, but I I'm more likely to say, because that's not what the story is about. The story mm-hmm. is this intimate look into this relationship. It hasn't, that doesn't mean that there's that, that the parenting aspect isn't more real and more pressing, but that's not what the book's about. This is about this relationship. Right. Yeah, it's, not, it's not about family life. Yeah. And we're invited to look in on it um, and to, and, and, and to be transformed by that special insight. Mercifully Stegner didn't try to be Tolstoy. Thank you. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, so uh, Nicole warns us, that this is going to be an uninteresting question, but I actually kind of like it. She points, she says, I found this book completely perfect, but can't understand for the life of me why the last chapter begins with us knowing that Sid is missing and then goes for pages and pages of details of Larry looking for him, even though we know he isn't going to find him. I was just trying to get through it into the part where time caught up to the present and we could figure out where Sid was. I feel like all that searching would have been more interesting had we thought there was a possibility of him being found. Obviously, hmm for a reason can you tell me what it is or can someone just answer here and we don't have to waste precious podcast time discussing such a boring question <laughs> no no you're gonna waste our podcast time on this perfectly fine question any thoughts uh other than that uh, that scene is not built on suspense in that sense it's not built on the am i gonna find sid <laughs> he's very interested in just subverting all the things that you expect of a, right. of a book 
Right. Well, well even, and- even just having Sid's crossing to safety moment happen entirely off stage. Yeah. I actually kind of think it's brilliant. I, I, oh, I that. agree. I agree. Well, and there's another, there's another meandering journey in the book too. If you remember when he's going from, when he's driving from Madison to Battelle Pond and um, uh-huh. to see Sally point, and yeah, yeah. to visit. And it just goes on and on and on about the rain he runs into and where he buys a sandwich and how he stops for gas. And, and it's, so there's that mirror idea of how the, the kind of the eternal time it takes when uh, it, it feels internally, you feel every minute of, oh, no, I have to stop for gas is taking forever when something is at stake. You know, when there's something on the other end of the journey that is precious to you, even though, again, the journey is just another mirror into the quiet life of these people. Right. But there is, and it's a significant journey to him. So he describes the every pain, painful detail, and it feels painful to the readers to read, just as it felt to his heart, right? But because this is Larry's struggle to come to terms with charity, mm-hmm. I think it's important that Sid comes to terms with charity entirely on his own and not via a conversation with Larry. Agreed. Great point. So everybody has to have their own private journey. And the fact that Larry is shut out of Sid's journey, it just points to all the times he felt shut out of what was really going on in Sid's heart about charity. Everybody's reading into Sid what they think he feels when we never know, which I kind of think is one of the points Stegner is trying to make, right? You never know what's going on in someone else's relationship. I think that's a great point. And maybe it speaks even more solidly uh, and um, to Sid's kind of come, I don't want to say coming of age, but his ownership of his own life. He doesn't need at that point, he's not including Larry because it's his, he didn't just go from charity to Larry. He did it on his own. Yes. And it reminds me of the scene about the dishes where Larry puts himself in the middle of that conflict, but Sid doesn't want Larry to put himself in the, that conflict. Hmm. Right. Yes, no, this is right. our agreement. He keeps saying, no, no, Larry, this is our agreement. It's, it's very much. You don't understand. This is our agreement. And Larry's like, no, I do understand. She's punishing you. And that's not fair. Right. Uh, I, I love that scene because as so I, I've said it repeatedly or multiple times anyway, right? Like that I would be the person who would not put up with charity <laughs> if I was their friend. And so that's like the one scene where it gets close to like, there's this catharsis. It's like he finally stood up to her, but then it kind of dwindles out. Huh? Yeah. Because it was Larry standing up to her. And what, right? It was. Right, yeah, right. Which yes. there's, that's not a primary conflict in the story. That's not a necessary resolution, right? It's no, just, is it Sally? Sally yes. says toward the end that part of Larry's pleasure with charity was that they were, you know, yeah. picking on each They provoke each other. That's part of the, the dynamic there. Yeah, they seem yes. like siblings or cousins or something. Right. Okay. Um, Christy asks, I'm interested in if we think. Technically, this is not a question, Chair Christy. <laughs> it's not a question to say that you're interested in something. Okay, so she says, I'm... It, let me see if I can phrase it like a question. She says, I'm interested in if we think Larry crossed to safety because through the experience of watching Sid and Charity deal with death that he realizes that he too will have to let go of Sally. And then she just puts a question mark at the end. That's cheating, Christy. That's cheating. Um, <laughs> This is a question, though. Is that part of his crossing to safety, or is his crossing to safety more dependent on how he now sees Charity and Sid? Am I even making sense? That also is a question. Um, 
No, you're not. Next. <laughs> so, do we think that Larry crossed to safety because through the experience of watching Sid and Charity deal with death, he realizes he too will have to let go of Sally? Or is his crossing to safety more dependent on how he now he now sees Charity and Sid? Well, it's both, right? Yeah. Right. Because that conversation with Sid where Sid's like, look, you know, you're a bond. You're, you're in bondage to your wife, too. It's not just me. And that forces Larry to think through his whole relationship. And then he's he's forced to reckon with the fact that he, too, is going to be a husband who has a wife who dies. And uh, I, I think it's, I think it's all I think it's all related. And, and, and maybe thinking about Sally dying helps him to be a lot more charitable to charity. Hmm. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's all of it. But I think what's really important to this novel, and one thing I love about this novel, this might be my favorite thing about it, is that each of these relations, and he says this in the very first chapter, that they can't change each other. Mm -hmm. They, and this is something close to my heart, that in being in relationship with someone, we should make someone more who they are. Oh, yes. Right? Not try to impose, which is the big sin that's, you know, the term, so I'm going to use the term sin, I don't think Stegner would use it, that charity commits, that she's imposing, but they can't change her. And at the end of the novel, I think that that is the resolution that Larry comes to, uh, that he, that although they all have applied their powerful wills <laughs> to changing each other, at the end of the novel, they just love each other and they have each become more of who they are, even charity. And, and, and then that he finds peace and redemption and the crossing to safety. Yes. And that is why Sid has to go through that by himself, right? Larry yes. can't be the one to convince Sid to change. No, no one changes anyone. Right. In, in the book. And so they, they all have, they have four separate, but related crossings all uh, brought into action by Charity's death, um, but all separate. I mean, you know, when, when, when Charity gets in the car and breaks down and realizes that by rejecting Sid, you know, being strong for Sid, quote unquote, she had hurt herself. She had denied herself something that she needed. That's a, that's a, that's a tremendous moment. Right. Yes, it is. And even Sid's moment of ownership of his own life is still one of submission, right? You, it is implied that he is coming back to do as Charity has planned for him. Right. But because it, it's not, the whole point isn't to change him and make him more assertive and make him, you know, although throughout the whole book, a lot of us are rooting for that for him on Larry's behalf, right? Like, come on, Sid, stand up for yourself. But that's not an act of love, even from the readers, Right. The right. point of, of friendship and of love is to say, I see you and I want to be a part of making you more who you are, even if that means that in some ways I still feel as though you have failed me. Yeah, just to be clear, the fact that I would um, mix it up with charity and stand up to her does not, I don't mean that that is a virtue. <laughs> right. <laughs> who you are, right? Like you, that's... <clears throat> that, there's a redemption in that too. It says that they enjoyed that. That's what binds them together. They like that battle of the wills, but they don't want it with their spouse, right? So there's, there's this, that's, that's a thing that makes you, you. So go ahead and fight her. Don't just sit around and be like, well, I need to be more like Sid. Like don't, so that, 
that whole idea of making the characters, making each other more who they are is I think the crossing to safety for all of them. Hmm. Let's jump over to Jesse's questions because we're going to run out of time mm. on the one person who we don't want to. I know. Right. Leave out. There, leave they were such good questions today. too. Okay. Um, besides she'll probably like, there'll be like a horse head in our bed or something. Um, <laughs> She's got right next to the other one I have. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not mounted on the wall yet. That's weird. <laughs> um, okay, so did Charity have to die in order for Sid to cross to safety? Oh. I'm stumped by that question. All right, moving on. Yeah. Angelina, what do you think? Well, in terms of the narrative we're given, yes. Right. Are there theoretically other ways? Yes. That's the beauty of being the storyteller, right? That's right. right. That's, yeah. This is the story Stegner chose to, to tell. That's my cop-out answer. Um, did, but, but I think the point of her question probably more specifically is getting at, did he need to be... Did he need to lose her? Did he need to lose her? Did he need to be, I don't want to say free of her because that's got very positive, you know, rim. Like, and I don't think he would say it like that. Right. Because I, I don't think he will be free of her even after she, she you know, right. goes away. Um, and I mean, like goes to the hospital, but also. When okay. She so I think so. theoretically, theoretically, after Charity realizes that her attempts to control have hurt her too that theoretically she and Sid could come to some other place at that point. Hmm. Could she have gotten to the point to that point though, where she realized that except through the well, recognition that is, of her own mortality? That is a very good question to realize that in the end you can't control death. Right. She had, she had to be faced with the one thing she can't control. Right. The ultimate, the ultimate test of her, of her will in a sense, and or not of just of her will, but of the power of, of her capability. You know, theoretically, Sally's illness could have done that for her. Huh. It was something out of her control, hmm. but she still tried to control it. Right. Mitigate it. She's always asking her, are you working out your muscles? Are you like, we can beat this. She even was bothered by the fact that they went to New Mexico where it would be better for her instead of staying there and kind of fighting it with her. Right. So is if if this is you know the next stuff, Jesse's follow up question was is Charity then a Christ figure? Ha ha ish. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I will read every single piece of text you put in your question. Um, right. Or does Charity or or does Charity or Love have to die? She's small C Charity die willingly. Um. That's a very. I don't, I'm not exactly. I don't sure think that Charity is a Christ figure, but I do agree that her death is is the force behind the, everyone's uh, epiphany at the end. Right. You wish yeah. then that's not that's obviously a there's that sort of archetypal. Uh, oh yeah. Well, and it's that that makes me think her name actually is significant. I, I've come uh, uh, to terms with. Well, I don't want to find anything, and you know. But I think that that, I do think that her name, it is Charity who uh, is in the, to use, to use the biblical language, she's kind of the rock of stumbling for everybody in the story, right? She is how everyone does learn charity, true charity in the terms of having to die in order to love. So I think that what Jesse's getting at is really important, um, uh, and of course, in the world, as you point out, Angelina, in the world of the story, yeah, she does have to die in order. That's because that's the story. Um, 
but I think everybody would want to believe that there are other ways. It doesn't have to be an irrevocable loss right, uh, right. in order to come to terms with our humanity. But it just, so, so really it's two questions in real yes. life. Could a, could a charity change without being faced right. with her death? Well, yes, because this is why we have spiritual deaths and rebirths, right? Because all of us have to die to be able to get over ourselves. But right. when you start talking about stories, and I'm going to reference Westerns here, so I'll throw this for you, David. When you tell certain stories, you can you create a situation and narrative where sometimes there's no more room for that person in the narrative. So they have to die or they have to ride off into the sunset, which is your your Western archetype. And, and the point is that person can't exist in that world anymore. Um, you know, and I, I like that you mentioned that because that I, that's one of the reasons why um, you know some of the ar- some of the archetypal choices that are made in like horror films, for example. You know how like people talk about how like there's, it's kind of become a joke that that there's going to be like one token African American character in a mm-hmm. horror movie. They're going to mm-hmm. be the first person to die. Yeah. Essentially, what you're saying there is that there's no more room in this story for that person, and that's a lot more sinister from a sort of fundamental storytelling perspective than it is than I think those kind of jokes make it out to be. Yes. And so what you're, cause you're making judgments about the value of, of characters or, or, or like, um, you know, even archetypal characters or whatever. Um, and, and so, and that's, and that's where the Western plays. And you see that a lot in genre, like there's a certain kind of character who could only be in it for so long. Um, and the central conflict has to be sort of bound up in that. So then are we saying that she, in this story, this story had to end, like there was no other way for this story to end than um, for Charity to have died? You know, that's that's a hard truth to swallow, but part of me feels like that's the only way Larry can come to terms with loving her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some kind of great tragedy and loss seems as though that the story is con- I mean we all felt that right the story is converging toward some kind mm-hmm. of irrevocable change which always includes loss and it turns out it was this natural death from cancer which isn't the tragedy of the story the tragedy of the story is Sally's polio right and that that's the thing in which the story that I think young. makes it so human because I don't think the story needs that. I think that the story, that's what makes it so human, right? The story does kind of need charity to die. I would, I think that's true, but it doesn't need Sally to be crippled. And there's that human element. And yet Sally's suffering does something for her that charity won't let her suffering do for her. Exactly. One of the, one of the, very, very difficult lessons I have had to learn in my life. Um, And this is a personality thing, right? Um, One of the very difficult lessons I had to learn in my life was that I need to let people help me, that it is not a virtue to be an extremely independent person to, to the extreme. I mean, right. That that where you refuse any and all help. Um, When I came to finally realize that my wanting to not be a burden was actually uh, denying some people the the opportunity to love me because we love by serving each other. And that I was like, I was being, I was a stumbling block. I was like, you can't love me in this way. I will not accept your help. Um, that was a hard lesson to learn. That's part of our personal transformations is to realize that we not only are commanded to give love, but we have to learn how to receive love in, in the way that that looks, right? So Sally by the nature of her suffering has to learn how to let, she has no choice 
as humiliating as it is at times, she has to let people uh, serve her. And, and Stegner makes the point that Charity is one of the, is only other than Larry and the nurse, the only person that Sally will let help her to the bathroom. That's a very intimate, humiliating, low state, right? Yes. Yes. And, but Sally he, he brings lets it up a Charity lot too. love her. Sally lets yes. Charity love her in that way, in that weak moment. Mm-hmm. Charity never lets anybody love her and help her she's going to help everybody she's going to refuse help because sally is like christ right like she's she has the recognition and the acknowledgement when she sees christ so she understands what love is first and graham brought that up last week their narrative arc her crossing to safety in many ways happens earlier because in this in this the safety is the ability to forgive and to love so right. we don't see Sally suffering embittering her either. Right. That's pretty huge. And she knows exactly who Charity is. Like she's very clear that she is not naive to Charity's frailties, which probably means she's not naive to Larry's, right? So there, but she let she allows herself, she makes herself vulnerable to receive, as you say, from even the people that she she forgives so early in the story. It's really beautiful. I, She's a beautiful transcendent character. I think that um, that's an interesting or an important point that you said there, that she recognizes Charity's frailties and she also recognizes her, um, like what makes her wonderful too. And that's why I think she, in some ways, sort of warns Larry away from her, right? Like she sort of defends Charity at times. And a lot of yes. Larry's conversation uh-huh. with Sally, um, the longer ones, especially are, they're talking about Sid and Larry and, and Larry and Larry's the skeptic and Sally's the one who's defend. I don't know if I would even say defending, but she's, she has, she's this, seeing, she, she's yeah, naming. She, yeah. She's naming, she's sympathizing. She's, she's, um, she's recognizing the humanity and the suffering behind the if suffering is a strong word for what I'm about to say, but she recognizes what's behind charity's actions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. That they're not the, the way that charity acts is not disembodied. It's, it's mm-hmm. the incarnation of something that's happening or the embodiment of something that's going on within, um, within charity's soul. And I think that Sally is someone who recognizes the inner life of people. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And that's why she, rec- and, and that's, and I think that that's mirrored or it's represented in her recognition of what's going on in the painting in that scene. Um, and, and, and mm-hmm. what, what's, what Larry's doing is he, he, part of this book, I think is an expression of his journey towards getting closer to that point where he mm-hmm. also begins to recognize the inner life of, of the people, of these people. Mm-hmm. And Charity yes. thinks she can see the inner life that is shut out to other people. She thinks she can see the real Sid that no really one else can. She stop to look, though. Well, no, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, Jesse does mention, um, is Charity related to Karen uh, or Karana, however you say it. Everybody says it differently. The, the, um, the ferryman of Hades who carries souls to the, across the river Styx and so forth. Um, and you guys were talking about the idea that Charity is the one that carries people or delivers people to safety. And that I think that maybe at worst or at least Stegner maybe is having some fun with that. Um, Hmm. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't catch that, but I think it works. Mm -hmm. Carving or char, CHR, you know, however you want to say it being crossing. Well, no, that makes sense. That line in the frost poem about the custom slept and I've crossed over. I, I, I took that as a river stick Mm -hmm. image. Yeah. Yeah, with all the water imagery in the story, certainly. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then she finally asks, Jesse asks, what the heck was the serpent? I just don't get the metaphor or I don't like it <laughs> as a metaphor. I'm not sure which, both maybe. If Charity's death restores people to safety in the Eden scheme, she's the seed of the woman. Help. Halt. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here since I'm no. the one always used of this, but you're reading too much into this. You're, you're, you're trying to make it allegorical and it's not. The serpent is just the thing that lost, made them lose Eden. And it's a number of different things. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just the idea that you, you know, nothing gold ever stays to quote another Robert Frost poem, right? You can't live in the garden of Eden. You can only have moments there. Mm-hmm. Something always destroys it. I, yeah, I, I think, think that's I all Stegner is yeah. getting at. It changes what the, what the serpent is. I think, I think that uh, when he started talking about Adam and Eve and the garden and the serpent, that, I think some readers were expecting him to do something that he had no intention of doing. It wasn't a comment on Eve blowing yeah. it. And, well, and- I, in Jesse's defense, I do think, well, not that she needs to be defended. Jesse's pretty <laughs> um, it, Nonetheless, I think that what we're, what, what she's kind of identifying is that like great literature beyond, even if it's not allegorical, it echoes to other things that cause us to think. Um, oh, absolutely. And so they, the archetypes and the images and things like that, they're echoes of all these other great stories. And so it's, it's, it's turning, it's having, causing us to turn our eyes to those stories and that's helping us reflect on this story. So I'd agree that I completely agree that it's not allegorical, that it's not meant to be read that way. Um, but also I can, I can see why Jesse would get to that and how it would cause you to think. Oh, of that. course. And it's definitely a, recu- oh, a, a very, very recurring motif that Segner keeps setting up these little Edenic scenes and right. showing yeah. that they can't last, which is part of the theme of it being an elegy. Cause that means, and that goes back to the time reference with the Frost poem. It, the, the elegy is all about the passing of way. Right. That's why I love that at the end, there's this sort of potential for Sid to have gone to their place. Oh, you know, I like that too. And that it, it's, it's, it's kind of possibly back under the surface, but we don't, he never tells us though. Um, because we, I like we, the idea of like in. Sid banging on the gates of Eden, trying to force himself back in and then accepting that you can't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, Susan Johnston. That's asked- going to be my fan fiction short story. <laughs> 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 the missing Sid scene. <laughs> Susan asks, well, actually, again, it's not a question, but I'm going to mention it again. Um, she says, I've been wondering if Larry is somehow the serpent, if his view of charity colored things. What was him? What was up with him slithering out of the sleeping bag just before seeing them naked and realizing that all was well-ordered in their relationship? I don't know that we need to respond to that. I just That's an interesting comment. Well, I think um, it has echoes. If I, I'll just say real quick, it's, that is definitely an echo of the Paradise Lost scene where, because uh, that's how it starts, where Satan is spying on Adam and Eve in the garden. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he's envious. Right. I would, and I, I mean, I'd, I think to respond to Susan's question, I don't think that that is necessarily intended to carry throughout the whole book. Like Larry's right. the secret serpent. Right. Right. Um, I think that as you pointed out, Angelina, there's multiple cracks in Eden. Like it really, it isn't necessarily that one character or one situation came in and destroyed it. That's, that's kind of the, the, the Christian, we can't impose that kind of Christian myth in the, true sense of myth upon this story. Um, it really is more that all these things, you can't stay in Eden. You can't live there. 
that's, that was your point. And I think that that's exactly what's happening here. So it isn't that Larry is kind of just this secret hidden, the, the secret to the story is that it's Larry who's the serpent. Right? I also think that it had, so I think the reason that that scene where he slithers out of the sleeping bag, which is a funny way of putting mm-hmm. that, um, yeah. I enjoyed that. Um, I think that part of the point of that scene is that like that scene couldn't have been he and Sally, right? It had to have right. been, he has to see, he has to see charity and, and, and Sid, um, it, it, because it shows that the, the relationship is more complex than he was thinking. Yes. He's been mm-hmm. casting so much judgment. He has to see them as Adam and Eve and Eden came as, as like ruling their own kingdom. Their marriage is their own kingdom. And it changes his perspective. It changes how he thinks about Sid. He thinks he realizes, look how he, like he sees Sid in a way that makes him look strong and graceful. And also mm-hmm. he sees, you know, he sees charity and thinks she's beautiful. And he thinks all oh, these are people that are actually happy together instead of just constantly feeling like, Oh, Sid, you know, instead of constantly judging charity and then kind of almost looking down on Sid. So it makes them more human. It makes them more complex. If that's, you know, if that's, if, it's not just the revelation. It's not just meant to be an idyllic scene. He could have just made an idyllic scene and had, mm-hmm. you know, it could have been the other couples, you know, but that's, that's not the point, the full point of it. So, um, do you think that pity is uncharitable in this case? Like huh. is Larry not having charity for Sid because he thinks Sid needs to be pitied. Hmm. I've been thinking a lot about that, but also I added, I've been thinking, adding to that, people have been talking about how charity, I think Jesse even mentioned it. Like charity is like this sacrificial love for the Morgans. And even though they don't deserve it, it's like unmerited. Right. Um, one, I think that the Morgans actually in some ways do deserve it. And I think they're offering something to, mm-hmm. the, to sit in and charity to the Langs that they didn't have otherwise. And that they are recognizing their need for. Um, but Agreed. also I think that there's a case to be made that charity is actually act being, more she's she pities them more than she loves them and she sees them as she sees them as um this is a negative reading of her certainly but i think there's a part of her um that sees them as like a uh what, what do you as a um project a project yeah i think you no, can I, read I, it. I, I, think that that's, I think there's a part of that at least i don't i don't read charity as being pure like having the sacrificial love for them I, I see her as having some sacrificial love for her for them i thought of it as and this fits with what you're saying that 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 charity is the is the personality type of the helper and so they need exactly. someone to help right mm, right right you, yeah yeah. And people use those kind of people seek other people out. <laughs> right. They do. And, and, and even calling them a project uh, that has a lot of connotation. Yeah. Yeah. Of, it you does. Know, manipulation I, that I don't think charity, I think it's sincere. Her so desire to help is very, very sincere. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't disagree that there's sincerity there, I, but I also think that it's self-serving. In some oh, oh, I completely agree. And I don't mean that in like a purely selfish way, but it, it, it fulfills a need within her as much it as it does. does. I mean, Sally moment. points out that charity is at her finest when Sally is stricken with illness. That That is a very good description of a certain type of person. So mm-hmm. that, and, and those people are good and we need them. God knows we need them, right? Because when, when we're... <laughs> When we're a mess, we need those kinds of people to swoop in and help us in those moments. But then when we're not in those moments, those people can be very overbearing. And sometimes what can happen is that that kind of person can almost delight when something bad happens to you because now they can jump into action and save you, if you know what I mean. Like that sounds so sinister, (laughs) but there's almost this, yes, I'm needed. Right, right. It's not so much about you. It's it's more like, oh, this is a time for me to shine. Yes. They're, They're sad that you're in trouble, but they also feel like this is my time to... 
to do my thing. Right. Well, they feel useful, which they need to feel useful. So it would be very complicated. But it's easy to find those people overbearing if you don't need them because they need to be needed. Would this be a bad time to say that I'm good in a crisis or? No, don't come to call it, if I'm in a fender bender. you have a crisis. <laughs> don't call me for a fender bender. I, I had a crisis this morning, David. <laughs> you had an accident. That's not a crisis. Okay, 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 okay. I handled it. Okay, do you still want to be my friend even though I handled yeah, that's it? That's <laughs> I guess. I'm um, not happy unless I can bail you out of jail, Heidi. I've been clear about this. <laughs> I'm sitting here with $500 cash money ready to go. I need it. That you, the fact that you mentioned that is interesting though, because in some ways it feels like one of the things that, Sar- that, that, charity, that, that charity likes about having Sid's money plus her own money, there, there but, also, but certainly Sid's money is that she can use it to bail people out. Uh, right. You know, I'm using that metaphorically. No, um, right. that's true. Probably that's literally the very as well. first thing we see, right? Is she... She uses Sid's money to to alleviate the problem her family was having with the fact that developers wanted yeah the exactly land. yeah and like it's you know it's it's couched as like this she's doing this big service to the community she has this big mission for it but at least part and that's that's true it's it doesn't make that less true but it's it's also true that it fulfills something within her it's not just mm-hmm. about the other people well um, and that's human right we're also we yeah, all have such totally. mixed motivations all the time but as you're talking Absolutely. about it i realized that that also metaphorically was her attempt to preserve eden right yes. sure yeah and i don't mean that that's that kind of that kind of what i'm saying about her is not necessarily meant to be a judgment of her character and more of an observation right. like i don't mean that that's sure it doesn't com- no i agree on virtuous every things. every personality a- type right every personality type has has the good side and the bad side to it right so the helper type is great in some situations and overbearing in others just like the really independent person is good in some situations and horrible in others right. yeah, my oldest son is extremely high energy and intense and that's great but it's also terrible um <laughs> yes <laughs> As someone who's high energy and intense, yes, it's exhausting. <laughs> um, it's great until it's not. <laughs> by the way, this episode is airing on his seventh birthday, so I'm just going to say happy birthday to Coulter on the air. Oh, oh yes, happy, happy birthday, birthday, Coulter. Such a sweet, sweet boy. Um, but yes, like to give an example of the overbearingness of an independent person, any parent who has to have wanted to dress their child and the child is screaming, no, I'm going to do it by myself. Do you know that there are times when you're like, just let me help you. We <laughs> don't have yeah. four hours for you to put these shoes on. <laughs> I'm glad that you're trying to be independent, but also I'm not. Um, yeah. Not right now. Be independent when I need you to be independent. Yeah, exactly. Which, and that's that's the challenge. That, that's the thing about parenting, right? Like you always want them to do the stuff until you don't want them to do it. And then you don't want them to do it. And then they want it. It's just the worst. It's it true. is. Um, and yet parenting is not overrated. Um, okay, let's talk... Um, do we want to... Did you feel like we covered the question about parenting, by the way? Heidi, you, you, you mentioned it in passing. Jill's question. Right. She says uh, a little, I, yeah. I don't think it's the, I don't think this, I don't think he's telling anything about parenting. I think the kids are, um, I mean, you hate to say it, but it's almost like the soap opera joke, you know, where they, they have the birthing scene and the next time they're 13. So now they can have adolescent problems. Like they're just, they're just yeah, appendages yeah. to the main story. Right. Yeah. Because Jill says and that reflections, little... right there. They, they do, they do give us insight into who these people are based on how, I mean, charity's attempt to control her children, for example, gives insight into her character. Mm-hmm. 
Jill mentioned that you think the story would be different as, as far as that goes, as far as the 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 uh, role of the kids, if the perspective was say from Sally's, and I would say yeah, definitely because oh this is yeah, the book about you know what's going on deep inside of of Larry and how that's being expressed. So, but it's also he's looking at very specific things. So, um, and also most of the scenes, there's no children of age, <laughs> so right. they're either not there because they're adults or they're not born yet. <clears throat> um, let's see we covered a lot of ground here um, I don't want to leave anybody out so here's an interesting question how much of our this is from Ilya I think I probably just butchered her name how much of your uh, how much of our death is really ours was charity see that's like a, that's a question mm -hmm. that is complicated was charity right to Ooh. orchestrate her death the way that best pleased her or do the feelings and attachments of others deserve consideration as well Megan hmm. commented we got to get together and rant all the possible answers though i think rant about all the possible answers um, or rate so rate? i think the um, thing about charity is that she does think she's considering everybody else's feelings she would exactly. say i am thinking about sid i'm doing this for sid i'm doing this for sid to my own hurt and there are a few moments when you see that that scene in the bedroom when sid breaks down and her instinct is to is to hug him and have this tender moment and she withholds herself from it she hurts herself in that moment too she resists it and then only once he's kind of submitted himself to her will then she then she hugs him so uh, charity keeps herself under a tight rein too mm -hmm. so i think she i think charity thinks she's being self-sacrificing i don't i don't think i don't see it as selfishness versus selflessness charity thinks she's being selfless right exactly and a helper would that type of personality right. would always see themselves as selfless and doing everything for everyone. And why don't they appreciate me? Right. Which goes again to that point that we were just talking about, about how in this story, the characters make each other more who they are. They remain who they are in her death. She is just as much charity as she has been all of her life. Mm -hmm. She is managing and controlling from her deathbed, but she wouldn't use those words. She would not say I'm managing and controlling. She would say, I have I'm like preparing. this. She keeps saying it. I have to do it right. Just let me do it right. Mm. Like this, that yeah. sense. Yeah. And, and to your point about that, her being the helper personality, if we're talking about the Enneagram, the helpers right next to the reformer, which is the number one. And so those things are so tightly connected in charity. Mm -hmm. I have to, I have to help others by doing things right. Like I'm always got to be oh, growing. Yes. I've always got to be oriented to the future. Right. So that's, like the, and to your point, Angelina, she would never say like in her mind, this is the most selfless giving death that she gets. She's not mm -hmm. giving in. She's not letting people pamper her. She is doing it right. And she needs everybody. She's legitimately suffering. She's also yeah. refusing to take medication, painkillers. Right. Because she wants to do it right. She wants to be able to talk to people. She wants to be able to have mm -hmm. these moments. She's got her like that, that little line about her grandchildren, how she has all of her grandchildren in for like their final moment with grandma. And the one daughter, the one granddaughter comes out and says, I feel like I just got checked off the list. Right. Like that mm -hmm. is how charity does relationships. So in her mind, this is her way of having a good death. And I think that one of the things that Larry is reconciling with in this book is the sort of the problem that that way of approaching it, or the problems that that way of 
approaching it causes, but also the nobility of that. Agreed. Agreed. So I think that he's, I think he's viewing that from both of those lenses and he's saying, you know, that's why it's such a complicated thing. Um, and, right. and that's kind of what everybody has to balance, right? I think that's why the question, how much of our death is ours, is, is an interesting one. It's a good uh, question. Because it that's, is. that's what, I mean, that's what a lot of life is, right? <laughs> uh, balancing those two instincts, those two things. And it's it's what makes the book, I think, so rich is that Larry is struggling through how to, in his own mind, balance the sort of selfishness and the nobility of that at the same time because both of those things are there and both of them are valid it's not wrong for charity to want to do it her way but it's also it's also in some ways sometimes some ways it is wrong it's right and in in the but it's all it's it's noble and problematic at the same time right that's what makes the drama it's it's, Mm-hmm. As, as frustrating as it, as it is, her last day, uh, there is something beautifully noble about wanting to have that one last joyful birthday party that everybody could remember. And I think all of us, you know, the three of us, we're all parents. We all had the experience of hiding something from our children. I mean, that, you know what I'm, uh, you know what I mean? Like sparing them from some, you know, yeah. trouble that you're but, having or the family hammer, the world's having because you, you know, not until after that, you want them to have that great birthday party. You want them to have that great memory where we're all mitigating yeah, you're gonna move the, den- the dentist appointment where they get the tooth pulled to after their birthday so they're not thinking about it until then right well right. Yeah, exactly on, and all the, and all, on all the little things too like you know if there's a death in the family and you wrestle with you know do i tell them now in the middle of this birthday party that actually happened in my life my grandfather died on my sister's seventh birthday oh wow and, um so my parents really did wrestle with, do we go on with this birthday party and just not tell her? Like, do we give her, you know, what's the right, what's the right thing to do in that situation? On the, you can actually, you can make a very good case for both of those things that life should stop and there should be grief, but you can also understand and be sympathetic to the impulses. Like, let's just keep them in the happiness for a little while longer before you devastate them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of devastation, this show's got to end. Um <laughs> That's a segue. <laughs> thank you to everybody who has who sent in questions. Um, thank you to everyone who read along with us. Um, this is I anticipated this book would get a um, the sort of response that it did. That some people would love it and some people would be like, "What's going on here?" Um, that there'd be a lot of people who appreciated it but didn't love it. I, like Angelina seems to have sort of concluded. Is that where you are? You appreciate it, yeah, but yeah. you don't, you didn't love it. Um, right. Uh, so I anticipate. So thank you to everyone who's been reading along with us and listening and contributing to the conversation. I think we've had some um, good episodes on this book. So um, next, we are going to be discussing on this show. We're going to be discussing Graham Greene's "The Power and the Glory," and so that's going to be Tim and Heidi and I. And that's going to start next week, and we're going to read part one, chapters one and two of that book. That's about thirty pages. Uh, Graham Greene can sometimes be a little bit slow getting into the flow of his writing, so we'll do just those thirty pages for next week, and then we'll I'll post the whole schedule on Facebook and on the on CloseReadsPods.com. And then Angelina, you're going to be joining uh, my dad and I for our much ado about. Much Ado About Nothing discussion. So make sure that you're reading Act 1 of that for the Plays the Thing show. So those are the two, the next two books we're going to start next week. So those shows will go up, what, October 5th or something like that? Um, I don't know. I'm going to time warp. <laughs> that sounds about right. 
How Can did, it just did, stop me in 85 degrees, please? This is what is messing with me. You grew up in Louisiana. How does it, um, how does your know, time it's warp, shocking. how does your time warp relate to the Robert Frost poem? <laughs> I want to give nothing to time. Nothing. I'm holding everything back. Nothing is forbidden. It's all mine. <laughs> well, that went in a very intense direction. Um, <laughs> Heidi. Travel yes. safely to England, Angelina. You. you may want to work on that time perspective there. Um, <laughs> Heidi, please pay attention to driving on the correct side. I, know, I was going to say thank you for not saying once don't you, hit anybody else with your car. But once you get over there, drive on the other side of the road, though. You're going to. Oh, I don't drive in England. Opposite. I'm, just I be careful train. crossing the street. Even that is dangerous in England because we look the wrong way. That's true. That's true. Yes. All right. Well, thank you. I'm going to have a great time. Drink tea and wander around cobbled lanes. It's going to be so great. Sounds nice. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, thanks also to New St. Andrews College for sponsoring. If you want to learn more about um, what they do um, or about their upcoming uh, visit weekends, you can uh, go to nsa.edu slash visit. And again, those weekends are, well, that, those days of that, oh, that weekend is October 26th and 27th. You know what I'm trying to say. I don't even know what I'm trying to say, but you know what I'm trying to say. You're doing great. Um, <laughs> thanks. You're so encouraging. Um, I know. That are you making fun of me. Um, no, I would never do that. For Heidi White and for Angelina Stanford and for all of us here, at the Cersei Institute and the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David. Thanks so much for listening and happy reading.